Welcome to the Lead Management Mastermind Show, the only podcast where you'll learn about lead management best practices from the top lead management and sales marketing executives in the industry. Hear about the optimization, strategy, and techniques that have made each of our guests the best of the best in the lead management domain. Live from the headquarters of SDP Solutions, here's your host, Scott Payne. Thank you for joining us on the Lead Management Masterminds podcast. My name is Scott Payne and I'm the host of the show. I'm super excited to have you with us on today's episode. I want to tell you a little bit about what the Lead Management Mastermind show is all about. As you heard in the intro, we're going to talk about best practices and the tools and techniques that have made people successful in the lead management domain. I've become an avid podcast listener myself. And so when I listen to podcasts, I really want to get straight to the point of the topics I've chosen to listen to. And ultimately, I want to hear about best practices from leaders in the space so that I can use these tools in my own future business. I want this podcast to be really the same for all of you who are out there looking for solutions and techniques to make your business better and ultimately trying to make you look like the hero inside of your own organization. So on this podcast, I'll be interviewing some of the top leaders in the space. I'm going to be starting with those people who have been super influential in my career all the way back to 2008 when I started a sales marketing team at Nation Star Mortgage, now Mr. Cooper. That brings me to my first guest, Jeff Solomon. Jeff is a co-founder of a system that is near and dear in my heart, Velocify, formerly known back in his day as Lead360. Velocify is coming up on its 15-year anniversary, and I'm extremely excited to have someone who has held just about every role at Velocify as our first ever guest. Jeff has done almost every role at Velocify, including CEO, board member, head of product, head of marketing, enterprise sales, chief motivator, janitor, everything in between. Jeff is a super successful entrepreneur who is now the CEO and founder of AudioJoy, a mobile audio content platform, and Affinity, a mobile engagement and monetization platform, both based in LA. All right, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing today? Great, man. Good to speak to you. Yeah, it's great to have you on as our first guest. I'm super excited to have you. Um, why don't you start off by telling everyone a little bit about yourself and uh, your history, if you can. Uh, sure. I, I guess I'm a serial entrepreneur. I, um, I didn't start out that way. I actually had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated college. I, wasn't really, I didn't really study anything particular. I certainly wasn't studying technology, which I ultimately ended up in. Um, and I, I've told this story a few times, but I graduated college and uh, my dad was like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, I have this friend that owns this plastic manufacturing company in, in LA and he's a good dude. You should go meet him. Maybe he has a job for you. And uh, so I went to meet that guy and he's like, um, I have no idea what you're good at, but your dad's a smart guy. So I'll just hire you and you'll figure it out. And that was how I got my first job. And uh, it was actually a good job because I learned a lot about bringing products to market. And I learned about, a lot about what I didn't like, which was um, the slow, uh, painful process of bringing a manufactured product to market. It was just not for me. But I did like all the moving pieces. And, and uh, during that time, I somewhat started to get an idea of what software could be because the internet was kind of going off at that time. This was 1996. Um, and that led me ultimately to, to learning about software and getting into that space. And, um, I started my first company a couple of years later and with a bunch of friends who ultimately a couple of those people were, or one, one of those people was a co-founder with, uh, in Velocify. We started that company, raised a little bit of money, completely crashed and burned and it was very painful and emotional and left me depressed for a period of time, but it was a good learning experience. Um, and out of that, I started another company. It was more of a consulting company on the software side. And from that, we spun out kind of sort of incubated, if you will, um, lead 360, which was you know, ultimately called Velocify. Uh, and that's kind of how we got to that, that point. And since then I've done, you know, a ton of other companies. I, I teach entrepreneurship at high, in high school. I've been doing that for five years. Um, I started a, an accelerator in Venice called Amplify, which is still around on the Spit Fund. I've been, I've been, I've been around in LA, small, small pond, decent sized fish, you know, not the, the biggest guy around, but I've done a, done a lot of little things. 
Yeah, that's great, man. Thanks for the history on that. Um, wanted to tell everyone real quick about that app you created for, uh, for kids. Uh, uh, tell more about it. It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, this, at one point I really got interested. This was sort of when I was transitioning out of day to day from Leads 360 and I was really, you know, just fascinated with mobile and I wanted to learn how to make mobile apps. And so I went to a startup weekend on San Diego and pitched this random idea for an app where, you know, my kid, I had really young kids at that time. I had twins. They were, you know, I don't know, maybe five or something like that or four. And I had this idea for an app where um, the kids would have to identify uh, what a picture was. Um, if I can recollect it correctly, yeah. it was called, it was called where's mommy. Yep. And we, you know, I, I cobbled together a couple of developers at that, at that event and we built this app and uh, um, I don't know if we won the competition or get second place or what, what ended up happening, but we actually launched the app and it was live for a while. And we did a few iterations and I guess your, your kid liked it and it had, I mean, in its peak, it had over a million downloads. Um, wow. So it was kind of a cool, you know, first attempt and learning at, at how to make mobile apps. And I, since then I've, you know, spent a long time in mobile. That's been a big part of my, my focus over the last 10, 12 years. That's awesome. Yeah. So just give everyone some context. Uh, Jeff was, uh, at, when we at Nation Star purchased uh, Lead360 at the time, Jeff was the sales guy who came in and did the dem demonstrations for us on site. Uh, and so I got to know Jeff then, and then uh, we ended up implementing the software. And then I saw somewhere that he had had this Where's Mommy app. My daughter at the time was nine months old. And uh, so we got, got her that. She started playing around with it and just fell in love with it. All right, so let's go back to the early days at Lead360 and Velocify. Can you walk our listeners through how the idea first came about to start a lead management system. I know you said that uh, it was kind of incubated in the consulting company that you guys were doing, but talk a little bit more about how it actually first came about. Um, really, uh, a lot of the credit for that goes to a guy named Scotty Hewitt, who you probably know he's been, he had been around for a long time in sales and he was doing some freelance sales work for us at that company. That company was called Think Logic, which it, incidentally, the guy that I, I had brought in to help me on that business, I ended up you know, selling off the company to him and he's been running it ever since and it's still still going and is, he's done quite well with it. It's kind of funny. But anyway, uh, Scotty was doing some just sales to try and get us business, anything. We would build whatever you wanted. You know, that was kind of the business. And he was out there and, you know, the mortgage boom was kind of happening. And so he was, he was getting all these mortgage companies looking for tools. And, um, after two or three clients came in, I thought, um, you know, Hey, there's, there's something similar about what we're building here. It's really the same thing over and over again. Maybe there's a product to be had. And at the same time, uh, my other co-founder at Lead360, Charles Chase, um, had just graduated from SC and he was kind of consulting with me and just sort of like hanging out, trying to figure stuff out. And, and he kept telling me like, look, you know, this, this consulting business think logic thing is cool and you're making some money and everything, but you, you know, you're never going to be able to sell it. It's, you don't have a product. It's not a really scalable business, which I knew. Um, he's like, we got to build a SaaS product. And I didn't really even know what that meant at the time. Um, but after, you know, a couple of weeks of kind of talking to him and, and hearing from Scotty, I basically realized, you know, what, um, what he was seeing in the market and what we were building for these mortgage companies was essentially a, a SaaS lead management platform. And that was sort of how we put those pieces together. And we said, let's, let's try and build one that we can, you know, replicate for each client so we don't have to customize it each time. And, and that was, you know, how we started the, the process of, of building out that software. Yeah, so I <clears throat> looking back at the day, so this is back, what, 2003, 2002, 2003? Probably yeah. around there. Yeah. And so back then I've always heard the stories about how people used to get leads from, you know, different lead providers on a fax machine. Right. And they would go pass them yeah. out to the, to the salespeople. Did you guys, is that kind of the things you guys were encountering as you were talking to different mortgage companies at the time? Yeah, they were getting them by email or fax or a spreadsheet. And, you know, at the time it really wasn't necessarily about the speed, although we, you know, obviously later learned that that was a critical aspect. And so we, we built that into the product, but, at first it was just, just a tool to like organize that stuff and, you know, keep track of who got what and what they did with them. Um, and so it was, it was just a simple tool to manage that. And that's what we were building these little custom one-offs. And then, um, 
and then we were like, well, we could build this actual platform that could handle this for multiple clients. And, and uh, I also, at that time, you know, we were kind of a scrappy shop, you know, we built stuff inexpensively. We weren't like the cheapest guys in the block, but we certainly weren't building enterprise software at that time. So I didn't really have anybody on my team um, that could actually build like an enterprise software. And Charles had worked at this company um, at the time it was called CyberU, but later became Cornerstone on Demand, which ended up being a huge, you know, IPO and big success. He worked there for a number of years before he went to get his MBA. And he worked with this guy, Tony Christopoulos, um, who was the, the lead architect at that company and had built the very first, you know, version, like enterprise version of that platform. And he was like, well, maybe we could go get that guy to come and help us build this thing. And so, you know, I, we went to we, this great trip. We took to Vegas with that guy and we kind of pitched him the idea. And, and um, you know, he was, he was thinking about leaving there anyway. He had, you know, he had gotten a good amount of his stock, but it was still, he probably left a lot on the table by leaving there when he did, but he, you know, I guess he gained a lot too by coming over, but um, he was kind of on board, but uh, his, his wife, who's still his wife, who's a great woman is also kind of a ball buster. <laughs> and he was like, dude, I, I don't know if my wife's going to go for this. Like, you know, she likes a comfy life. I got a good salary here. Like I'm like jumping into a startup that has no money. That's just got this idea. He's like, I don't know if we're going to pull it off. And he's like, let me, I told him, let me, let me try and work that out. Mm-hmm. And so I said, let's go to dinner. Let's take your wife to dinner and I'll take my wife and we'll like, see if we can get her on board and if I can sell her. And so of course, Tony, if you ever met Tony, you know, he's kind of like, he kind of marched to his own drummer a little bit. He's like, he knows he's got to, he's got to deliver for his wife. But at the same time, he kind of like, he's kind of a little on the selfish side. So like his wife is pregnant with their second kid, I think first or second kid mm-hmm. and he's like yeah let's let's go for sushi and i'm like dude we can't go for sushi your wife loves sushi and she can't eat it and i'm trying to convince her to let you leave this cushy job that's probably going to be a big success to go to a, a, a sketchy startup like that's not a good idea no nah, no nah, it's all good don't worry she'll be fine and so we get there and of course she was pissed because she couldn't eat sushi and we were like you know pounding sushi and and rolls and whatnot and mm-hmm. anyway so i had i had like an extra obstacle to work on with her and uh, ultimately that conversation went well and she like, you know, believed in, in me and what I was doing. And she was like, let's, you know, I'm okay with it. So he, he came on board and, and uh, helped us build that first version. Awesome. Great story there. That's, that's cool to hear. Yeah. Cause you know, obviously need, need those types of people around and, and having that group uh, obviously is a big, big deal to get. Let me ask you a little bit about you. I've heard you mention some other podcasts about the, uh, the pitch that you did, the 60 second pitch. Uh, when going out and looking at potentially raising money uh, when it first started. You can talk a little bit about that, at, that experience at UCLA. We came to a point maybe a year in where we were like, you know, I think we could raise some money. We were doing some good, we were doing good revenue probably in like the 300000 a month kind of range. So it was like the business was, uh, was jamming. Um, and uh, I was like, I think we should raise some money. And at that time, like, you know, the whole venture community, was nascent in Los Angeles. There was really, it wasn't like it is now where there's a ton of venture investors. There's a bunch of seed funds. There's a lot of angels, there's incubators, there's accelerators. There's like a whole ecosystem that didn't exist back then. Um, and so, you know, going and having no experience and no relationships, it was very difficult to like, you know, how are we going to do this? And I kind of just, you know, started researching and I found this, um, this, uh, investment group that's still around the tech coast angels um and i went and pitched them and they liked it weren't you know they're not very uh pretty conservative guys and so they weren't ready to write checks but they were like well we have this fast pitch competition at at anderson coming up at ucla and you know you should enter and i was like okay so i um i was telling someone the story last night as i was thinking about this podcast this morning and i remember we had like a session with these guys before the event to go over the rules and like, you know, practice and like get clear on what we were doing. And there was like 20 people in the, in that, that, that meeting. And um, they said, listen, it's going to be 60 seconds. And at 60 seconds, the mic is going to turn off. So like people will not be able to hear you. So you need to finish your pitch within 60 seconds. It's very clear. 
mm-hmm. and you need to be, you know, give us a whole bunch of other pointers. The pitch was like, I just nailed it. It was stellar. And I won that competition. There was like three categories. I won all three categories. Let's take a quick listen of what this 60 second pitch sounded like. At Leeds 360, we don't sell leads. We sell software to turn leads into customers. I'm Jeff Solomon, CEO of Leads360. Over 10,000 subscribers use our customizable and easy-to-use lead management software to distribute, track, analyze, and convert more leads into profitable customers. In 24 months, we've grown to over 300,000 in monthly recurring revenue. We bill nearly 80% on credit card, and no one customer accounts for more than 5% of our revenue. We're already profitable, and we've only scratched the surface of the market. We're seeking money as well as advice. We're looking for an investment of $1 million to fund rapid growth initiatives, including sales and marketing, new product development, and infrastructure. I'm Jeff Solomon. I run a successful software company, and I need help getting to the next level. And on, on the panel of judges was a guy named John Babcock, who was at the time a bench, a partner at uh, Rusty Canyon, um, which was one of the few VCs that was active in Los Angeles at the time, writing checks. And um, from that, I was able to get a couple other VCs, one from NorCal, one from San Diego, to like get interested. And we had a couple of term sheets, and we negotiated, and ultimately we did we did go with Rusty Canyon for that first round. I think the first round was three and a half million or five million. I can't remember. Yep. Um, something like that. And, uh, you know, looking back based on where we were, if I was raising for that company right now, our valuation would have been, you know, 10 X what it was at the time. Um, it just was a different time, you know, and the terms would have been significantly more to our, uh, our advantage. They weren't terrible, but they weren't, they weren't great. Um, it's just funny how, you know, times change, like a SaaS company doing 300,000 in monthly revenue right now, you know, is, is raising at, at a huge value, you know, at, at yeah. least 30, 40, 50 million. So now so, the company has started. Um, and you know, it, if you go to the Velocify today and you walk around the floor, there's pictures on the wall of kind of the evolution of Velocify over time. Hmm. Um, and so there's a picture of the first location. Uh, and can you tell the, the listeners a little bit about what that, uh, you know, the location was like, the conditions, maybe the barbed wire, those types of things. Yeah, Remember? yeah. We had this little office. The, the It was an office that we had gotten for ThinkLogic, and we were running that business out of there. It was like around the corner from my house at the time in this uh, this industrial little street, um, which was technically Inglewood, but it was it was west of the 405. So it was, it was more like Westchester. That's where I lived, Westchester. But it was, the address was Inglewood. And and the company that, get, that leased us that particular building was a manufacturing company. They made like, I don't know, like turret arms or something random. And, and they were running 24-7 and it was loud. And they had this one building. It was maybe like, I don't know, 2,500 square feet that they weren't using. And so they leased it to us. And it was a cool spot. Um, and it had like a nice little front yard and everything. But yeah, it had, it had a, bar, a chain link fence around it with barbed wire on top. And, um, you know, it was a ghetto little building um, and was not appropriate for bringing clients necessarily. Although we did close some big deals there um, yeah. before we moved. You know, we, the biggest deal we got, which really kind of like accelerated us, was we, we closed a small group of um, loan officers at Citibank. And I remember they sent out their like their team to evaluate the company and the tech and like do their whole due diligence thing. And they sent this guy out and he came to the office Yeah. and you know, he wasn't, he wasn't pleased with what he saw, but he, he was more of a security guy. And so in the end he was like, it's secure. I don't, it doesn't look good, Uh but like, you know, the doors are strong. The windows are, are solid. There's bars. Like this is a good company. Like this is a good business or a good building to, to, to hold our people. We're okay. So they, they approved it and, uh, it worked out and we hired people there and, you know, we had, we had our late night deployments there and there was a lot of love that, that we had at that building for the first couple of years. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great story to hear. I remember my first time coming to Velocify in 2011, you guys were had already moved into El Segundo, like right you know, the first time you guys oh, okay. yeah. 
had moved in there. And so we're walking around and, and we get to the back corner and, and, and the, in the offices and conference rooms are developers sitting on beanbags uh, with laptops, you know, developing code and all that kind of stuff. So that was really cool to see, uh, f- you know, for us coming in doing our due diligence back then, but at least, uh, you know, to hear the history of where you guys came from to where it became and, and where it's at now, I think it's really cool. All right. Yeah, so, good, good run. so, you know, so now you have your first client going live, right? So the, let's just go back to then. So the first client goes live. What were some of the early obstacles you guys faced when having that first go live? If you can go back. Um, you know, the earliest thing we saw was the training. We basically realized that like we could build a great piece of software, but if the people didn't know how to use it or didn't use it properly, it was kind of worthless. And so we very early on realized that there was going to be a cost to operate the business in having, you know, talented people that are essentially training and onboarding and constantly helping um, these clients get the best from the platform. And so we invested heavily early on in a team of people. I think we call them like Salesforce, called them uh, CSRs, client success managers. And they basically, you know, did implementation, they did training, they did setup, they did testing, they just constantly were working with people to make sure that they were using the system right. And when they used the system right, um, they were almost 100%, you know, across the board in terms of the number of clients, uh, more successful than they were before they had the software. Mm -hmm. So it was very, and it was the cool thing about our product versus other software products is like, it was very easy to tell if it was working or not. Like you either close more leads or you didn't. Um, and so we were able to prove pretty easily, like this is working for you. You should, you know, grow your staff and you should spend more money with us and stick with us. And that worked well. Yeah. That's a great point. <clears throat> we see that a lot uh, in working with clients is that, you know, user adoption training, those types of things are super important when implementing really any type of software, especially, uh, you know, lead management software where they're, you know, you're investing a lot of money in, in these leads and you need to make sure that they're being tracked and, and being worked the right way. So, um, so now you, let's fast forward to, you have a couple of clients, right? A couple of clients using the system. How did the software evolve, right? So we talked a little bit about the training and investments made there, but how did the actual software itself and the product evolve as you started working with more and more clients? Uh, we certainly listened to the, what the clients were saying and we learned a lot that way, but I think a big catalyst for the evolution of the product and the business was, you know, our relationships with the lead providers, particularly lower my bills. So um, we got hooked up with them because our clients were using those companies, LendingTree, lower my bills, you know, next tag, all these different guys to get leads, but lower my bills was really progressive. And Matt Coffin, who was the founder of that company was, you know, trying to figure out how to sell more of leads and get people to stick. And he had a real issue with retention because, you know, these mortgage companies would buy $20,000 worth of leads. They wouldn't be effective with those leads. And then they would call up their sales rep at LMB and say, these leads suck. I'm out. And they would bail. And so he basically came to the conclusion that like software was needed. And he saw that some of the clients that were using Lead360 were actually being more effective than others. And so he started, he was open to developing a relationship with us. Um, and that was a, a key relationship for us because one, we got a lot of referrals out of it and we started to capitalize on that across all the lead providers, but Loma Bills just, you know, would very often send us referrals. Um, and secondly, he, uh, had a team member on his side that was sort of a product guy. This guy, Brian Dressler. <clears throat> and um, that guy was basically tasked with <clears throat> working with us to try and, you know, improve the product to the needs of low my bills and low my bills clients. So that included everything from how do we get leads from low my bills in real time, like, you know, posting uh, leads into the system. How do we make sure that leads get distributed to the right people? How do we make sure that we track that they got called? So all the things that they saw were breaking down from their clients, they said, we need to build, you know, ways to solve that. And so we had a direct feed of, of what to build next. And, you know, we worked with, with Brian and, and um, a bunch of mutual clients and the product evolved very rapidly because of that relationship. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. Um, what, you know, if you look back to what are some of the products and features that you felt like put Velocify on the map, right? Because, 
uh, you know, I don't know what solutions were around back then as technology was being built out, but uh, you know, what do you feel was kind of the big kind of turning point, if you will, uh, with the software to really, really go after some of the bigger clients and, and to really start expanding more into uh, the mortgage space? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing was probably always has been, or at least for a long time, was the distribution engine. So, yep. you know, not just bringing in leads and then someone manually assigning them to people. It was a system that would automatically assign them to people based on rules. And, um, you know, it started out simple where it was like there was a simple set of rules and then it evolved and there became much more complex rules. The distribution engine became intelligent enough to give leads to people and then take them back and give them to other people based on things they did or didn't do. There was, you know, a, a whole that whole engine became incredibly sophisticated and incredibly complex. Um, and like, I don't know if there's anyone that could have built it other than Tony at that time. Um, and that was, that was a huge, you know, selling point, especially for the bigger clients. Um, you know, if you're dealing with thousands of leads and, and hundreds, or in some cases, even over a thousand loan officers, some of our clients had at that time, um, it was, you know, unmanageable without it. Uh, so that was a big piece. And then the other thing that we did that really was uh, Brian Dressler's suggestion was, I can't remember what we called them. Um, essentially it was a way to track you know, the event that you did, I think we call them actions. Is mm -hmm. that what it's called in the software? Yeah. Actions. So, you know, the action was basically like I called and left a message or I called and no answer or whatever. And you could customize the actions. But the key to that tool was that by taking that action, it triggered off a bunch of other stuff. Yep. And so instead of like a typical CRM, you log, you know, what you did, but then you have to then do something with that lead to like set it up for the next thing. Whereas in our case, it would like, say I called and left a message and then it would queue up the lead automatically for the next, either that same person or the next person to call, you know, three hours later or whatever the schedule was. So it really allowed the loan officers just to take the actions or do the events that were, you know, prescribed by the company and then everything else was queued up. And so they never really had to think about like, Oh, what do I do next? It's like, Oh, here's what you do next. And that, that became a big like core component of the platform is like really trying to, you know, simplify the day-to-day -day for a loan officer in terms of getting a hold of these leads. Once they were on the phone and like trying to close a deal, it was sort of, you know, their style, their sales effort and all that. But to, to get them on the phone, which was the key first big step, you know, in closing a lead, um, that was what the tool did. Yeah, that's great. Status and actions were, are definitely a game Status changer. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, let the, let the user take the action of simply, what did we, you do? So easy. We used to have, we used to have, I was just from the side of the story. We, you know, every time we would release, you know, this is, there's a lot more tools for releasing software these days and it's a lot simpler, but like at that time it was a late night, like we had to push up code and then, you know, the way the database was built, we had to run these like complex scripts to update the database for every client. And, you know, at the peak of the business, we had, you know, a couple thousand clients. So it was like a couple thousand databases that need to be updated. So it was like, it was like a four hour, five hour, process to get mm -hmm. this release and we had to QA it. And so we had all, we had these QA databases that had like test and dummy data in it. And, you know, we had made a bunch of actions and statuses that were silly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the one that, that, and it would pop up in a database from time to time. The one we had this one where someone had put in an, in a action called kick dog. And mm. <laughs> so you pull that action and it does all this stuff, but everybody would, would crack up that night. We we're, you know, like one in the morning, we're death testing a thing and someone's like, Oh, I just kicked dog. <laughs> and everybody would crack up. Yeah, we had, it was a fun, they were fun nights. Like uh, my wife would make us, you know, a huge thing of spaghetti meatballs or she would make lasagna or some, some sort of dinner. She'd bring it at like 10 or eight or nine and we'd eat dinner. And then th at that time, Tony would be deploying to all these databases and we'd wait two or three hours, we'd play games, we'd like screw around. And then by like, you know, 11 or 12, we'd start QAing. And then by like one or two, we'd be done and we'd go home. And if it worked, you know, occasionally yeah. it didn't work and get the roll back. But um, we did those nights a lot. It was like, that was a key component to the culture of the business, which I think is one of the reasons why it was so successful is because, you know, the people that, that worked there, like we were so close. Yeah. So we were, we were so focused and close. It was cool. Yeah, it's always been a great culture and, and uh, definitely started there. So uh, let's go back to like 2010. I want to say it was 2010. You guys added 
the dial IQ feature into the system. And to me, I felt like this was kind of like the kind of took the system to the next level. It really became a yep. larger enterprise clients like NationStar at the time. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and you know, the, where, where this all came from to, to include that piece into the system? Yeah, well, we had we had had for a while this like click to call thing, which was very basic. It just showed the phone number you could click, and it would it would call, and that was a very limited function. But we we had thought about integrating dialer technology, either partnering or building, and we spent a while. And I had a product manager. I had tasked her with like doing research and figuring out you know what we could build, how we could build it, and she she did a bunch of stuff, and and um, we came to she and I kind of came to the conclusion that we needed x y and z features for for our first version and we I did some research on companies that could handle the telephony part and we stumbled upon this company um, that no one knew about at that time um, called Twilio wow and I flew up to San Francisco to meet Jeff Lawson and you know he had just started this company he had next to no clients um, I remember spending the day with him, um, and he was telling me about, you know, how we started this company and we wanted to do this stuff. And, and, you know, we were way bigger than Twilio at that time. Like we were bit, we were bigger than them, wow. but, and they needed, they needed some big cornerstone clients. And so they were, you know, very interested in working with us. We were, you know, we had, we were confident that we could generate a ton of minute for them, which is how they made money. And so, you know, we basically built our first version on top of their platform while they were building their platform. You know, like we yeah. were helping them define how their system would work. So we, you know, at, at, there was a period where for a while we were by far their largest client, um, you know, long before Uber and any of these guys. And I think back, I should have told Jeff uh, in hindsight, I should have said at that, that time, I should have said, Hey, why don't we swap stock? I'll give you 5% of the stock of our company. Give me 5% of the stock of your company uh -huh. and get into bed a little bit. And I, I'm pretty sure he would have done it. Uh -huh. um, and that would have been a huge windfall for me and, you know, Velocify had we done that. Yeah. Um, that would have been a nice one. But interestingly, we came to this point where I and um, our, the product manager was like, we have to build this. And it was a big investment, right? And we were banking on this company Twilio, which we didn't know was going to do as well as it did. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of pushback. And I remember being in a board meeting, or I remember being in a board meeting, telling them we got to do this. And they were like, they were kind of like, no, you know, they were like, no, we're not going to do this. And at that time I had, I didn't have nearly the same control that I did the company in the early days. It wasn't, we just didn't make our own decisions. The board had, had quite a bit of control. And so it was, it was something where they needed to be really sold. And I remember talking to Nick um, who I had hired and later he became CEO after I left. And, um, you know, I was like, dude, we got to do this. And he's like, you know, I'm sort of behind you, but you gotta, you gotta like sell it. And so I spent the next like week building this presentation as around, I wish I, I probably still have that presentation somewhere where I was like, what the dialer is. Cause I didn't even fully understand what we were trying to do and why we needed to do it and how big it was going to be for the company. And I, I built this huge presentation and I went into the board and I was like, this is an absolute must. We have to do this. And it, it was a tough day. They were not like, Oh yeah, cool. We're on board. It was very, a lot of pushback and we finally got the okay to do it. And obviously, you know, in hindsight, it was a huge decision, you know, uh, to do that. And it's, it's like transformed the company. Yep. And, you know, became a cornerstone of the product. Um, but it almost didn't, it didn't happen or it certainly didn't happen at the right time. Like it almost certainly didn't happen at the right time. That's crazy. <clears throat> it's crazy. Great story to hear that. Um, yeah, it definitely was a turning point, at least in my eyes and, uh, really was a game changer for the product itself and really what it's evolved to at this point. I actually have a, a blog post that, that I wrote that's going to be coming out later today that talks about one of the key features that exists today, which is a no-hold transfer that allows an agent not to put a customer on hold when doing a transfer. I think that's a, a big game changer as it relates to uh, getting the mm. customer a really good experience. They don't even know a transfer is going on in the background and, and yet we're still, you're still able to run through distribution programs to find the right agent to send the lead to and, and ultimately the call. And the customer never sees that that whole time, which I think is huge. So that's cool. Yeah, it's good stuff. So, Very cool. so 
what was your favorite feature of the system? You talked about dial IQ, maybe you've taken some thunder at this point, but you know, what was the favorite feature, the favorite feature that you helped build and, and why was it your favorite? Well, I like the fundamental structure of the platform was based on this thing called the form builder, mm-hmm. which allowed, you know, any customer to customize the fields that they wanted to collect in their platform. They could obviously customize the statuses and the actions and the distribution and all that stuff. But the form builder was a key component of, of the platform because it allows that allowed us to be flexible in um, um, every client that we went into. In fact, we were able to sell into other verticals because of that. You know, we went into education. It was different than mortgage, you know, um, and any CRM has the ability to make custom forms. But we had this vision or I, I kind of had this idea and we never ran with this product. But um some of our clients used it in this way where they had different needs in their business. They had their sales needs, but they also had like, you know, uh, some other function in their company. And so they implemented multiple lead managers, multiple instances because they wanted different forms and they wanted different rules and all that kind of stuff. And so the idea, which never came, came about and probably was a good thing that never came about because it would have been a a distraction and, and would have, you know, taken the company in a different direction was the idea of, of having multiple forms inside one system. So you could essentially manage different kind of business models inside a platform. And we never did it. Um, we did scope it quite a bit. But what was interesting is that that need I saw throughout my career after that um, being something that was needed in CRM in general. And there was a company um, maybe four or five years later after I left. So maybe like 2012 or 13 or something like that um, called uh, Relate IQ. And Relate IQ was a CRM product that had this concept of, didn't call it forms, but they had the same concept where you could have multiple forms for different purposes and it would all tie into the, the whole CRM. And they ended up launching that company. It might've been a YC company, I'm not sure. And didn't get that big. They, they, they grew to maybe like, five, 10 million in sales, sold it to Salesforce for a hundred million. Salesforce ran it as Salesforce IQ for a number of years. And then recently, and maybe like two or three years ago, they shut it down and just migrated to Salesforce. So it's still a whole, like they solved a real problem with that product. It was the best. It was the best CRM that I'd ever used. And I paid for it several, several different companies. And, you know, it was cool to see that idea come to life and actually work in the use cases that it did. And it's now a need again because Salesforce shut it down and none of the other CRMs really do it like that. Um, and it's always something I've had in the back of my mind. Like there's a hole in this area. We saw it back in the least for 60 days. I've seen it since. And um, I don't know why Salesforce got rid of it. Um, but it's a, it was a great, you know, component to the platform that I always really had a lot of love for because of that, that capability. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Cool story there. So jump back to kind of the functionality of the system and how it relates to user. You know, I I think a lot of the listeners would say that user adoption is always one of the biggest obstacles when launching a new, new product like Velocify or a lead management system. If you go back to like the early days, what were some of the techniques you talked about, you know, hiring training or, you know, doing some more training up front, but you know, what were some of the techniques that, that you remember going through of trying to get people, users who yeah. were stuck in their old ways of always, you know, kind of doing it the way they always have? Well, we came up with this idea of what we called best practice templates. And so we essentially pre-built these templates that had the form, the actions, the statuses, the distribution rules, the drip email, like it, everything was built out based on your vertical or your type of business. And so maybe we had a couple for mortgage or maybe there was one for mortgage and one for different categories, but it was basically, it was built around what we saw worked generally the best for most companies. And we had a lot of data to like support that that worked. And so what we did, especially with the smaller companies, but even some cases on the bigger companies, we said, look, we're going to start you with the best practice template and we're going to lock it down. You cannot mess with it. Like this is what you do. If you get good with this, then we'll open, unlock it, and you can customize it. Because what we found is that if we gave someone like an, a blank slate and said, like, have fun, and even if we help them, they just, they hung themselves. You know, they would, they would get too crazy with how flexible the system was, and it just made, it was a mess. 
And so we stopped letting people do that initially and started telling them what to do. And then from there, fine tuning it when they got good and, and, and it got even better. But we found that like, you know, for 99 out of 100 clients, if all they did was get, you know, use the best practice template and never did anything else, they would be exponentially more effective than they were before they had us. And that became, you know, a key cornerstone of how we launched the product. Um, and it also helped us scale because it was very, very difficult to go into a client and spend a week and 100 hours customizing the product for them and then, then falling on their face. So it was a lose-lose. And so this, this helped us ensure that they were successful and it was simple to set up because it was preset. It was fixed. There was, you know, we knew exactly how it was going to work and look, and we could train on that very, very efficiently. It was a, a ge- it was a genius concept. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, you know, I've actually worked with a couple of large organizations that have, you know, 1500 loan officers or so. And we've talked about ways to to tackle the adoption piece and we've kind of taken uh, you know, a page out of that book in that uh, we'll set up one or two or three different templates of different strategies. So, uh, so like, you know, user profile A has this type of strategy where you call leads, you know, once a day, et cetera, versus, you know, uh, you know user B has the ability to, uh, maybe it's two or three days, but essentially uh, you could set up these different profiles in Velocify through prioritization view and allow loan officers to enroll in which one they thought would best fit their profile. So it was a way right. to kind of use that best practice cool. template, but, but use it you know, across an organization to hopefully get user adoption to find someone to kind of fit their profile versus trying to fit into one kind of mold. Yeah, that's a cool, yeah, that's a great way to use it. That's a really yep. smart, smart way to use it because everybody is a little bit different. And, and even if you give them a good, good template, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, they're going to match with that. So yep. tailoring it a little bit to the sales, sales guys themselves is, is a great call. Awesome. So I, I was talking to some of my close colleagues, telling them, kind of shared with them the news of who my first guest was. And one of the questions that came up was I wanted to know uh, in 2008-ish when the, mor- the mortgage uh, collapse was happening, well, what was the thing mm-hmm. like at Velocify at the time? It was scary. I mean, we, we definitely nearly went out of business. Um, in between 2008 and 2009, we essentially cycled through 100% of our mortgage clients, meaning 100% went out of business or left or went to zero, went to zero loan officers. And we backfilled wow. with new companies too, but the net loss in mortgage was significant. Um, and at that time, we were not very diversified. We had a handful of insurance clients, but minimal and no education clients. and um, we were running out of money and, you know, I was trying to raise some more money from Rustic. And I remember, you know, being just very stressed and overwhelmed. And I was, my wife was pregnant with our twins and we were going to Hawaii for our like baby moon. And we were out there and, you know, it was basically like a couple weeks left. We had already done a massive layoff at the company, which was, you know, very difficult and emotional and stressful. And, so we had cut way back, but we were still running out of money and, you know, we were not growing at, at any speed at that time. And um, I remember being on the phone in the hotel in Hawaii with, with John and just like, you know, dude, you got to You either got to put more money in or I'm just going to shut down the business. Like, you know, you're going to lose your investment. And I'm going to walk away. Like it was a battle. And, and, you know, I came back and, you know, they did put a little bit more cash in and that got us over the hump. And, um, it was a scary time for sure. Yeah. It was, it was tricky. And then at that point you started to diversify more and uh, education and insurance and some of the other verticals out there. Is that right? Is that kind of where that's? Yeah. Started? We started moving other verticals and we had a lot of success. I mean, there were a lot of different clients in the end on the platform, but you know, it never was as good as it was for mortgage. You know, that was always the bread and butter and it was, you know, the mortgage companies were always the ones that had the most success and were the easiest to onboard and the most likely to retain and the most likely to grow. It was just, you know, the lead industry was very, still very large for that space. And it just, it just worked the best, you know, that's where it really, really, really shined. Um, so we, we always were, um, you know, a mortgage software in that way, but, um, yeah, we had to diversify to like, you know, manage the ups and downs and every category had it. Insurance had ups and downs, education had ups and downs, mortgage, you know, every category we went into, we, we sold some 
at the time we met, I was, I had moved into enterprise sales. We didn't really have an enterprise sales team. It was all inside sales. And so I'd moved into that role and, and, you know, this guy, Tim Donnelly and, and I were heading around trying to close bigger deals and we closed some random stuff. Like I remember we closed this deal with this, this company that sold, um, cremation services, Yep. but it was a big company. They had like a thousand sales reps. Yep. you know, and they would basically pre-sell cremation services like, Hey, you know, your loved one is going to die at some point. You should have this planned out. So you're not stressed out when it's happening. That's basically the pitch and they were killing it, but they were, you know, they were using paper, you know, it was a disaster. So like we, we got the software to work for them and it, it worked for a couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we were, we were trying to find anybody that had like a consumer direct sales force. Yep. That was, that was the, the fit. Yeah, that's great. Great story. So as you look back, uh, kind of where it started and what it's evolved to now, what, what would you say you're most proud of? Probably just the, the culture thing. You know, we, I really spent a lot of time building that culture. You know, everything from, you know, recruiting to these late nights deploying to office events, bringing in meals, like having book clubs. Uh, going on um, trips to to amusement parks. You know, we used to do a thing every Halloween. We'd go to Not Scary Farm. Like everybody would would drive out, or we'd get a party bus when we got bigger. And and for at least maybe eight years, every Halloween we did that as a group, and we ate dinner and we hung out. It was like a huge thing that everybody loved and everybody knew. We did a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, we went and played golf together. We we did paintball together. We did just tons of stuff as a team. And um, I think that was really the key because, you know, in any startup, there's a lot of ups and downs, you know, it's rare that you just constantly good. And the thing that keeps everybody together, it's really two things. It's, it's having this, this tight culture where people like, you know, feel like what they're doing is important and what they're doing is aligned with everyone else. And that leads to the second piece, which is that, you know, you really have to be effective at um, getting everybody on board with what the priorities are and what the most important things are. Because, you know, in a lot of startups, um, and I, I see this even to this day in companies that I work with, um, you know, you have people that are not clear on what the priorities are and what the most important things are and what the vision is. And so they're working, you know, in silos and one person's building one thing and then wondering why this other person is working on this thing that kind of has nothing to do with the thing they're working on. They're like, well, why should I work on this thing? If that person is doing that other thing and that might be cool, but like, that's not what I was told is the most important thing. So why are we doing that? And, you know, really spent a lot of time to try and make sure that everybody knew what we were doing and they, and, and they did. And they felt like anything they were working on, anyone else that was doing something was, was complementing that. So if it was a piece of software, somebody was working on, you know, the documentation um, to onboard that new person, right? Because the thing about a, a company in general, but especially in a startup, there's a misconception that like, if you, you all you have to do is build it, right? Especially in software companies, right? You just, oh, we got to get the tech team to build this thing. But the truth is, building it doesn't mean it's going to work. There's a lot of other pieces, right? It could be someone's got to write training materials. Somebody's got to onboard clients. Somebody has to go sell those clients. Somebody has to enter data in the system. Somebody has to configure it. Somebody has to write, you know, help materials. Like there's all kinds of things that need to happen to make that product come to life. And if everybody's not working on those other things simultaneously, you get to the point where your product's out and ready. And you're like, well, we can't launch this because nobody wrote any training materials. We yeah. can't launch this because nobody updated the website with that piece of information. We can't update it. You know, so that's a huge problem in companies, you know, and I think a lot of founders and CEOs forget that they need to get everybody on the same page because it's like a ripple effect. One thing affects everything else. And so if everyone's working on different projects, which sounds cool because you're like, Oh, we can do 10 things at once. Like, yeah, but then every one of those things is done poorly. Yep. Great advice. Yeah. Great advice. And, you know, I was a Philosophy employee for four years and can really attest to the culture there. It was such a great company to work for and, you know, really built a really good foundation for, for the company. So hats off to you. Um, oh, man, thanks. So in closing, uh, you know, we all know the Velocify, uh was purchased by Ellie Mae back in 2017 for $128 million. And, 
know, I've heard that co-founders usually make out pretty well when these types of things happen. So can you share with the listeners something fun or, you know, something fun that you were able to do or purchase to celebrate your long 13 years and working with the company? Yeah. Um, it was a good, it was a good outcome. We, we had a pretty reasonably clean cap table. So, you know, all of the, you know, people that had stock in the founders and, and the investors too, everybody did really well. Um, it wasn't, you know, in some cases there's a, there's a real nasty cap table. And so like people kind of get screwed in startups. It happens a lot. Um, but it worked out well for everybody. And, um, I, uh, the, probably the main big thing that I did, I'm not a huge, you know, huge spender. So I didn't take lavish trips or buy fancy cars or, or whatever, but, um, yeah, I bought a, a, a house not far from my other house and I tore it down and I, I basically built a new house from scratch, which was always something I wanted to do. And, you know, I, I designed every nook and cranny of, of the house, you know, from where the plugs went to how the cat five table was run to where my speakers would be to like, you know, how the desk would fit in, like everything. Um, and it was, you know, it took, it took a little over a year. Um, but it was super fun. Like I had a, a great time. It's a, it's a, it's a great house. Awesome. Congratulations. That's so exciting to hear. Yeah, so, fun. Well, hey, man, thanks so much for joining us today. It was so cool to, to hear some of these stories from back in the day and, and to have your expertise and insights on different things. So honored that you were able to join us and be my first guest. And I uh, want to thank everybody out there for listening to the show today and uh, look back uh, in the next couple of weeks for our next episode. Yeah, man. Congrats on, on starting this thing. It's cool. Um, like I said, you, you look pro, dude. Your setup looks good. Your office looks nice with a little door in the back and the, the mic and everything. And it, yeah. it looks good. And it, was, it was well done. So I'm honored to be asked to participate here first. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining, Jeff. All right, man. Have a great week weekend. You too. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Lead Management Masterminds podcast. Today's episode is presented by SDP Solutions, your one-stop shop for all things lead management strategy and optimization. Please visit us at www.sdp-solutions.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast site.